Australia Free Trade Agreement entered into force on December the 20th, 2015. Widely considered to be the most comprehensive free trade agreement signed between China and a developed nation, CHAFTA is undisputedly a significant landmark in the Australia-China relationship and the envy of competitor nations that do business with China. With 95% of Australian goods tariff-free upon full implementation, export products including dairy, beef, wine, seafood, fruit and vegetables, processed foods, vitamins and health products now claim a more competitive position in the China market. Chapter has also opened up opportunities for the Australian services sector with unprecedented access to China's burgeoning middle class at a time when China is seeking to develop its own service industries. Early signs indicate that Australian exports have benefited from reduced tariffs, with wine exports increasing by 40% and skincare products up by 71%, just to name a few successes. Today we speak with the Chief Architect of Chafta, former Trade and Investment Minister Andrew Robb, who takes us behind the scenes of Chafta negotiations to discuss how the deal was secured and what it means for Australia. In our wide-ranging discussion, we cover Andrew's view on Australian businesses' take-up of Chafta, as well as his insights into the sticking points of the negotiations and how access to the services sector was secured. Until his recent retirement from politics, Mr. Robb was Australia's Minister for Trade and Investment. In this role, Mr. Robb not only negotiated CHAFTA, but also free trade agreements with South Korea and Japan. Additionally, he conducted 85 investment roundtables with 28 countries. Mr. Robb is currently a board member of the Kidman Cattle Enterprise and the Network 10 television station. He's also chair of AsiaLink, SENS Doe's, and strategic advisor to Beef Innovations Australia, as well as a range of national and international businesses. I hope you enjoy our discussion. It's with great pleasure that I'm joined today by former Trade Minister and current AsiaLink Chairman Andrew Robb. Andrew, thanks a lot for joining us today. Great pleasure. Andrew, it's been one and a half years since CHAFTA has come into effect. Australia-China two-way trade currently stands at $150 billion, and upon full implementation of CHAFTA, 95% of exports to China will be tariff-free. Additionally, finance, legal, tourism, telecommunications, health and aged care services enjoy unique access to the China market. In a sense, the government has done its job in securing the agreement. How do you rate the business take-up of CHAFTA so far? Has it met your expectations? Uh, yes and no, and I, and I say that in, uh, with respect to the sort of uh, uptake that's taking place. It's remarkable uh, at a um, small and medium business level, there is a lot happening, mm. right? Um, people entering into joint ventures and uh, lots of experimentation, um, certainly in the agricultural space, but increasingly uh, with health services, of course tourism is mm. going gangbusters. Um, 
and a lot of the services areas are starting to really lift off, off the back of it. But big business in Australia um, overwhelmingly has not engaged. Um, in fact, um, it's deeply frustrating and AsiaLink is just about to put out a study which we've conducted which shows that such a dearth of uh, experience on boards in Australia of anyone from Asia mm. or anyone with deep, in or deep experience in Asia. Mm. So uh, there's a lot to, to happen there and the thing is the big companies have got the capacity to uh, you know, to do the, a lot of the work and to fund the introduction and the, the joint ventures and to, you know, to get themselves properly involved and properly informed with the right advice and all the rest of it. Many small and medium businesses don't. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's a matter of, I think, in showing big business by demonstration, um, which is what I'm trying to do now that I'm in the private sector is to help facilitate major deals between major companies in both country and two countries and to look and identify what are some of the principles towards success in that regard. Do you think some of that hesitancy from the business community is because of the fact that you're doing business with China and China's its own complicated market? Or do you think it speaks more to Australian business culture and possibly being more risk adverse than it should be in missing opportunities as a result? Well, firstly, I think um, big business, but even some obviously uh, mid-tier mid business as well, um, have avoided opportunities or are avoiding building opportunities uh, with China because we've had 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth. For the last decade, Australia's had the highest growth rate in the developed world. Mm. Um, in other words, off the back of really a lot of the resources boom, which is driven by China, mm. <laughs> ironically, and not just China, but by Asia, right? So, uh, but a lot of people in Australia thought, or didn't think about it, they just, made the most of 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth. Now, that's been a great thing for all Australians, but the thing is, you know, this, this phenomena occurring in the, in the region around us, for mm. the first time since European settlement, the last 30 years have predominantly seen this massive growth in trade with Asia. Uh, the first 170 years was largely with Europe uh, and the United States, yep. 12,000 miles away. Right? Mm. Uh, now it's all changed. Um, uh, eight, seven out of our top ten trading partners are now in the region around us. Um, and it's only just started. I mean, mm. China and India are returning to where they were for 18 of the last 20 centuries mm. as part of the centre of gravity and power in the globe, mm. economic and political power in the globe. So. This is an inevitability and I don't think many Australians have yet to recognise it. Of course, the language differences make it more difficult than doing business with the US and Europe. Mm. Um, so a lot of people haven't felt the need to get out of their comfort zone, yet the foundations need to be laid now uh, to capture uh, 
uh, you know, the, the mutual trust and the relationships and um, the knowledge and um, the, the cultural awareness, all of the things that uh, in, in, in the goodness of time will be critical mm. to Australia properly engaging commercially, politically and every other way with the countries on our, on our doorstep. Mm. I think a lot of the time Australians forget how competitive it is in China. I think we talk about the China relationship being purely bipartisan between Australia and China and forget that 120 other countries call China its number one trading partner. <laughs> Are there any other countries you think Australia could look to that do China better, that have a better China strategy? You know, China's got, as you say, um, what, in excess of 120 countries mm. call China their biggest trading partner. And um, you get countries like the UK more recently. Germany, true, but uh, a lot of it's in the industrial area, which is very important. They've got a comparative advantage in the globe mm. um, over most countries. Um, but um, the thing about Australia is that... You know, it's such a complementary situation between ourselves and most of the Asian countries, but certainly with China. Mm. What we're good at, um, they need, and that is health services, aged care services, uh, you know, building hospitals, mm. um, um, helping to train nurses and doctors, and, and also in the technical area, in the manufacturing area, increasingly you know, medical devices, high-end high end manufacturing is something that we are very competitive with and, and China can engage on that. But tourism, anything to do with education, um, hospitality, uh, all of these areas are things that China in that trade agreement gave us concessions that they've given no other country. Hundreds of concessions mm. when we talk about all those different services, architecture services, water management services, you know, financial services, all of these things, our brand is gold standard, mm. that we're seen as when we are a first world country, but on their doorstep, mm. you know, uh, we're a country that's half of it which is in the tropics, yep. so we've got even the tropical experience uh, to, to bring to bear, so there's so much complementarity, what we need from them, capital, mm. um, different areas of expertise, a lot of white goods and these sorts of things. Um, and what they need from us, of course, raw materials, agriculture, um, you know, the clean, green, healthy image of our agriculture is just absolutely gold standard. Mm. And increasingly, I've just seen it grow and grow and grow even over the last five or eight years. Um, and, and they want it. They want more than we can deliver, frankly. So there's a lot of reasons why you know, countries should you should trade and um, and participate in the things that you've got a comparative advantage with, mm. um, and you know we happen to be blessed with lots of things that uh, are, are not best order in China or Indonesia mm. or India or Malaysia or Vietnam. All of these areas are going to end up going the same way China has. I think. A lot of the opportunities in the timing of where China's economy is at as well, <coughs> transitioning from an export-driven economy to one that's more about um, you know, consumers within China spending money, developing the middle class, 
and Australia definitely has a role to play in helping usher in a new period of professionalism with services in China. Do you see that as a long-term benefit in Australia? Is there a risk that once China becomes prevalent at services themselves that there may not be a need for Australian companies 20 years down the track? No, quite the opposite. I, you know, I think if we become... If we build the relationships and the mutual trust and the understanding of one another and the tolerance and, you know, the more you know your neighbour, no matter where they're from or, you know, what they do, mm. the more you come to appreciate that person's got something to offer, whatever, you know, whatever it is, increasingly. Um, and that's no difference between countries. You know, the more we get to understand and appreciate the differences, really, um, then that'll grow and grow. So we've got to work it, and that's, you know, if we, if we end up in commercial areas together, where we've got something to offer, and they've got something, they've got a big market to offer, that's one thing they've got, right? And which is self-evident, but um, it's an enormous strength when you're trying to decide, will I go and put my toe in, in mm. Shanghai or Beijing or Luzhou or whatever you mm. want to go in China. Um, you know that uh, it might be a little bit more difficult to get started just because of the differences, etc. But if you do start to get some traction, uh, the margins are much bigger and the growth rates are much bigger than here. Mm. So if you do get the traction and, and, and they've got the, the populace. So, you know, you can never overreach in terms of your ambitions. Mm. <laughs> so it's... Um, there's just unbelievable opportunities. And as I said, China's giving us access in all these areas that they see that we're world-class. And you're right, they are trying to go towards a consumer-based economy. It was built on exports, their, their you know, modern-day economy and industrialisation. Well, already you can see textiles mm. have come and gone from China while we're still sort of trying to work out what's happened. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, they're now in Vietnam or uh, Bangladesh, you know. And the same thing's happening with a lot of other production processes. And the Chinese are realising, or have realised for some time, that um, if they want a sustainable economy, the market economy at home has to be huge, mm. just like the US, right? The US can deflect... Uh, a lot of other shocks around the world to the economy and whatever because they've got a big home market. Mm. We haven't got it, mm. right? We, we get buffeted uh, from one shock to another shock uh, on the economic front or on the political front yeah. uh, because we rely so much on exports. Mm. Uh, whereas China has, and it's not sustainable for them if they want a stable uh, economy, and what, they, what you do get as economies become mature... Um, you see increasing amounts of services driving that economy. Mm. Australia, despite the fact that it's got all those resources and it's got um, an agriculture, huge agricultural export sector, um, nearly 80% of our total income, our GDP, mm. comes from services. Mm. Health services, education services, financial services, you know. All of these different services, thousands of services, and and nine out of ten jobs in Australia come from services. Mm. What does China need? They've still got 300 million people. They've taken 500 million out of poverty, but they've got another 300 million still want to come from poverty 
into the middle class. Mm. Where do they house them? Mm. What, do they get, what are the jobs that they're going to do? They can see if they get into more service-based economy, more retail, more hospitality, all the things we now spend a lot of time at, drinking coffee and all these things didn't exist 30 mm. years ago in our own you know, community. Uh, that's where China's heading because that's where the jobs are and mm. that will provide the income, the, the domestic size that they need. Um, uh, it, you know, it's like a, um, uh, an anchor it's a, that gives ballast and, uh, and steadies up an economy that is at domestic size. And that's where they're heading and we've got so many world-class skills that we can help them. Mm. Uh, we won't swamp them, we're too small but we can help them uh, build their expertise in those areas. Thinking of the current service benefits of Chapter, do you think that, well, if, if I can just rehash some of them, there's legal services, education services, telecommunications, finance, tourism and travel, health and aged care. Do you think that in future negotiations on Chapter that Australia can extend the reach of Australian services in China? Do you think there's much capacity for room to grow within how Australia can access services uh, in China? There's no doubt about that. Um, it's, it, it's not, you know, if you're going to get services from Australia, um, really Australians have to put down some roots in other countries because mm. if you're going to provide... If you're going to own and build and run, um, you know, 13 new private hospitals, which is what we can do hundreds if we wish to mm. in China. That's mm. what the agreement allows. No other country's got that opportunity yeah. at the moment. Yeah. They'll get it. They'll get it. So we don't take this first mover advantage. Right. You know, we're wasting a huge opportunity. Yeah. But um, this is why, you know, we've got such a big relationship built on trade but that's largely through brokers, mm. right, and traders. That's not about most of our population having mm. some first-hand experience okay. with those countries yeah. and the way they do business and the way they think and all the rest of it. Um, so it's, it's quite critical that um, we start to invest. And for the first time, I think, for small business in particular and mid-tier business, it's become affordable to think beyond, well, will I expand my business from Melbourne to Sydney, mm. right? That was always a sort of big decision for the smaller businesses because mm. it's quite expensive mm. and even airfares between those cities were prohibitive right, mm. from a business point of view. Now, I think because of the digital age um, and the connectivity, like there's 100 flights a week coming in and out of China, mm. um, the belly of those aircraft have got... Amazing capacity to take uh, produce mm. and and all sorts of goods, uh, but the aircraft can take a, a lot of the services. You know, the medical specialist. Right. Who, you've got a medical specialist business. You take it up there. You find a good partner. Yeah. Um, and you start to grow that business with other with Chinese there. Mm. Um, it's um, they're the opportunity, but you've got to make some investment. Yeah. And, um, and it's not overwhelming, but you've got to put some roots down. You've got to, you know, get a building and employ staff and get equipment and all that. Um, but I think it's just as cheap now to extend your business in Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane, just as I think it costs no different now to do 
to take it to Guangzhou or mm. to Tokyo or to Jakarta or anywhere in the region, more or less, not totally, but most of those uh, areas, it's just as cheap to go and set up in those areas as it would be to take your Melbourne business and try and grow it into Sydney. Mm, okay. Because low cost of communications, um, the digital age, the capacity to, um, to do things, you know, more remotely, but it's particularly the connectivity that now exists in, in Asia, which didn't even five or ten years ago, you know. Do you not think Chinese government regulation still provides a bit of a hurdle for Australian businesses to set up as if it was Sydney or Melbourne? Um, no, I don't. Um, the irony is for me that, you know, I, go, I speak now at lots of forums on uh, doing business between both countries. And, you know, quite often someone will stand up and say, it's all very well you've got to say you've got this free trade agreement and mm. we can get access, but... They do all these things like have a regulation and a standard yeah. which we have to meet. Yeah. And and I say, yes, that well, they're a sovereign country, you know. Mm. Um, they're entitled to decide what standards mm. they want. Mm. And I must say, I've looked at this very closely. I've had 12 months now with a lot of commercial projects and they all relate some one way or another to standards, health standards and um, consumer standards of other s sorts. Um, what applies in terms of standards to exports or imports on their part, right, I find applies locally. Mm. Right? They haven't got two sets of laws. Okay, yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, we go through a whole lot of hoops here and then we get to another country and we think, well, we shouldn't have to go. Sure. It's sort of an arrogance in mm. a way that, mm. you know... I'm Australian. Right. Um, I can walk in here and you should be grateful. Yeah. You should be really <laughs> grateful about this. And, and you know, sometimes these people I'll get talking with and they've spent a week and it hasn't worked out, you know. And I say, in Australia, often you might spend three years nurturing a potential customer mm. or business partner, strategic partner. Mm. Right? You might work at that in all sorts of ways for a long, long time um, until you, you've got a commercial and, you know, solid relationship and yet you go to China and yeah. if you don't, it doesn't all work out in a week or a month, sure. you're out of there, yeah. you know, and you're complaining that it's hopeless to do business. And, you know, I've done some things now, um, uh, just brokered a major deal which involves the biggest agricultural private sector company in, in China with um, with the, the Gina Reinhardt's business, mm. with the Hancock Group, and it's going to involve hundreds of, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of live cattle each year. Okay. Right. And we had to go through a process to get, took six months, but uh, they had no health standard, health profile for live cattle. So we had to go through a process and work with the authorities. Um, but it was a relatively short period of time mm. when everyone buckled down. The other thing was having people with... If you get involved with someone in China, making, ideally having them having some skin in the game in Australia. And for us to have skin in the game in China, that makes a hell of a difference because you then... Um, even though you might be doing different parts of 
of the one business, mm. what someone's producing and the other one's selling. Yeah. Um, if you've if you've got uh, skin in the game in both markets, it removes a lot of the potential for distrust and misunderstanding, and mm. everyone's sharing the losses and everyone's sharing the gains. And there are some there are some very significant models starting to emerge, which I think uh, can really accelerate significantly the uptake of involvement with one another. I've heard sim similar things um, relating to IP protection and um, running out of the, the Australian Embassy in Beijing, there's an IP counsellor, David Bennett, yeah. who's working particularly on IP issues for businesses in China. And I think much of his research says that because IP in China is first to file, he has found that a lot of Australian businesses that have had bad experience of doing IP in China have the fault has been on them not protecting themselves enough. A lot of the time they do blame Chinese procedures and Chinese copying and, and that mm. type of culture, but the research points to those businesses not understanding the Chinese landscape well enough before they go in there and do business. Well, there's a bit of both, I think. I mean, I think China, you know, it's they only came back into the real world or the mainstream in uh, 1980, mm. right? So, um, and the first 10 or 20 years, uh, well, it's still in some areas, there was, you know, some unacceptable practices and certainly uh, pinching IP um, was not uncommon. Mm. But um, uh, now we find with this move against corruption in China, and it's in their own interest, because if they don't get on top of the corruption, um, who will want to invest there, mm. right? And the IP is part of it. But, and, but they're also finding that the, the corruption in some parts of their market um, is destroying their own market, right? Mm. And de destroying their good, yeah. their own good manufacturers or mm. whatever, right? Um, and the same is true, I mean, the IP, mm. if you're now starting to see certain, you know, operators up there who are pinching IP from other good operators in China. Mm. So it's it's now having such a... It had such an impact that they said, again, we won't get people investing. Mm. They want to get it right. They, they've got to get it right yeah. for, for their own economy. Sure. Yeah. Um, so self-interest is the best driver. Origin, you know, 30 years ago, the... The self-interest was probably turned a blind eye to some of that copying and all the rest of it mm. as their economy got up and running. But it's, it's interesting when, you know, I hear the Americans a lot because I did the TPP negotiations, etc., and they were complaining with good reason about IP being pinched and all the rest of it. But um, if you read the history books, uh, America, when they got a start, when they broke away from the UK and all the rest... Um, they built a lot of their their initial industrial capacity and the powerhouse uh, by pinching the UK European IP. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so not that that should justify anything that China does, but um, it's just a little bit ironic that um, you're seeing history repeating itself uh, with a with a developing country, mm. which China still is. Um, if, if we could come back to the 
chapter negotiations. Um, chapter itself was negotiated over a 10-year period between 2005 to 2015. What was the status of the what was to become the chapter agreement when you became Minister for Trade in 2013? Well, by that stage, it had been going since, what did you say? 2005. 2005, yeah. So, eight years. And what I found when I got involved with the China one in particular, that the the offering, the Chinese offering on the table for uh, agricultural goods in mm. particular, um, the offering on services was almost non-existent mm. after eight years. Okay. Right? Uh, the offering for agricultural products was identical to what was in place in 2006 when you know, my side of politics left, lost the election in 2007. Okay. So basically nothing um, had moved. Right. Since at least 2006, seven. Um, and there are lots of reasons, I think, for that. But um, clearly, um, despite the expectations, um, Kevin Rudd wasn't appreciated up mm. there. And he did some things early on which really alienated the leadership. They didn't say anything up there, they just didn't engage. Mm. They just didn't engage with us. Uh, to be fair to Julia Gillard, in her dying days as Prime Minister, um, she made some overtures which started to put the relationship back towards, you know, what it, what it was under Howard. Mm. But uh, it still had a long way to go. And of course, there's a lot of things have happened since then. But mm. um, so it was... It might have been 10 years, but it wasn't 10 years of negotiations. <laughs> How did you get services on the table? Was that something that the Chinese were surprised well, by? Well, see, I think perhaps, again, the affluxion of time mm. uh, helped a bit because by the stage I got involved, they could see that increasingly they needed to turn their economy into a consumption-based and services-based economy. Uh, so, uh, in fairness to my predecessors, I had someone across the table who had more, uh, was keener than some of the earlier Chinese negotiators about mm. services. But even then it was quite interesting. We, we, um, we did a lot on the, um, on the product side and that took a while. We, was, we were struggling, we were going around in circles and, um, and then I realised, uh, or I got intelligence from people, that every time I got onto areas that were a staple crop or... A staple part of the economy in the very poor parts of China. So, so like, like sugar, and like sugar rice. and rice, yep. a couple of oil seeds. Yeah. Uh, not much more than that, but they were things with I talked about the 300 million earlier who's still poverty-stricken, out of the 1.2 billion. Mm. Um, but 300 million, and every time I got into those sorts of areas, you could see my counterpart sort of visibly almost nervous about. Um, and, and also, I was probably doing the same when they asked me to get agreement in Australia to state-owned enterprises mm. um, being treated the same as a private enterprise. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so after a few months, and we we'd done a lot of things, but we was we weren't heading towards a conclusion uh, on the products. <clears throat> and and I said to my counterpart, why don't we? put those products that I know you've got a lot of political difficulty with. Well, I've got one 
that you're you're seeking from me. Which, mm. So why don't we put those in a basket and we put it in the treaty, so they've got to be dealt with, mm. but it won't start that until three years down the track. Okay, yeah. Right? So, then, so we, then we made huge progress okay. on, on the things that weren't politically difficult, you know, meat and dairy and all the other things, yeah. um, as well as other product areas in resources, space and manufacturing. So then we got on to the, the services and, again, we had a huge agenda of different service offerings and because it's 80 percent of our gdp right mm. and we were seen everywhere over there you know i talk about any service any engineering service water management service you know irrigation services anything uh, anything uh, which uh, was a service of certainly health services and education and mm. aged care all these things they were thought that we could bring a lot to the table but we were making no progress we were going round and round and round and um then we had built a lot of trust, I think, between the minister who I was negotiating with and, and myself over time. Mm. And um, we were discussing um, one day and he said, look, Mr Rob, look, the, the bottom line is that we want to do services, but if we give you the th sort of things you want, mm. um, ultimately we'll have to give them to the US mm. and to Europe. And not immediately, but sooner or later, you know. And he said, we're not comfortable with the prospect, if we open it up to the US or to Europe, um, that we can avoid a lot of unintended political consequences, you know, mm. like, uh, you know, 40,000 doctors arriving in Shanghai or... But, uh, I'm exaggerating. Mm. But if they get swamped with certain types of skill sets coming in, they can't accommodate it and it causes political problems in certain areas. Sure. And they're very, they're very attuned in China to uh, insurrection, mm. right? And um, because if you look back through China's history, it's not been voting in things that have removed regimes. Yeah. It's insurrection. Yeah. Right? Well, I think and that speaks to sugar and rice in regional areas. Exactly. And like, like food security uh, is a historical issue in China, more so than Australia's ever experienced. You're right on the money because... You know, nothing starts, you know, discontent more than starvation, <laughs> right? If people are not adequately fed and can't afford it, and when you deal, as I've been dealing with in recent months with some of the biggest, you know, supermarket groups who've got over 200,000 outlets themselves, each one of them, you know, you can tell they're very focused on what they call a social contract, mm. and a lot of that is the government wanting them to make sure there's plenty, enough food for people and that, that, that they can afford no matter what province. Yep. Right? It might be different offerings and all the rest of it, but they want to keep people satisfied and the, no basis for insurrection. Mm. And, um, and that was true of their concern about services. Anyway, um, I thought about this a lot and we weren't, nothing was happening. And, and I said to my counterpart one day, um, look, I've been coming to China off and on for 30 years, yeah. and the thing that's really impressed me is the special economic zones that you create, created through those periods where you were seeking to introduce change mm. and you know, new technology and new practices and new regulations, but you do it in a special economic zone, mm. which didn't then apply to the rest of the country. But if whatever worked, yeah. you'd spread it around the country yeah. and it would get acceptance. If it didn't work, you'd drop it, right? So I said, 
I think that was very smart because it accelerated greatly the uptake and the acceptance of change mm. and new technology and new practices. Uh, and I said, the thing it is that um, Australia has got less people in all of Australia than exist within all of your, any one of your special economic zones. Mm. So we cannot, if we were given you know, large access, there's no way we can cause unexpected uh, yeah. disruption, political disruption, yep. okay? We're not big enough. We mm. can't swamp you with doctors. We can't swamp you with engineers. We mm. can't swamp you with um, scientists. We can't swamp you with anything, frankly. Mm. We can come in and make a contribution at a world-class level and, um, and we can help train the trainers, if you like, mm. but we can't do the training en masse, you know, we're not big enough. So I said, you ought to treat us like a special economic zone. Yeah, right. And when the US and, and Europe says, but oh, you set a precedent with Australia, you say to them, we consider them a special economic zone. Right. From, you know, in, in practice, if yeah. not in theory. Yeah. And, um, I, and fortunately, about a week or 10 days later, um, I was at a dinner in Beijing, sitting next to one of the Politburo people, the one who was actually had trade okay. under his area of responsibility. And um, I had the same conversation. And, and neither of the, the Commerce Minister had not said anything at the time, and nor did the Politburo respond. But within about two weeks, the doors opened to okay. services. Okay. And I reckon if we're still negotiating today, there'd be more services coming through the door. China traditionally does use pilot schemes when it's experimenting to change its economy. So, like when, it. like when it first moved to a market economy in um, in Guangzhou, it was it was a, considered a pilot scheme. I yeah. think um, their China's national carbon trading scheme was tested on pilots for a few years. That's you know yeah. gone national now, and yeah, it definitely seems like a, speaking their language to go about it that way. I think there's even a Chinese idiom that talks about touching the stones before crossing over the river that is spoken of in, in, in reference to testing something before extending it mm. on a mass scale. Right, yeah. Um, so at that time you were not only negotiating CHAFTA, you were also um, in Japan and Korea. How did the negotiations compare between these three agreements? Was What stood out about the Chinese agreements? Was Were they easier? Were they more difficult? Well, the Chinese, I mean, it was... There were difficulties in each, obviously, no different ones. Mm. The South Korean one was, was the easiest, and it was the first, mm. and it was the most advanced, I think. Mm. Um, it had run into the sand, like all of them had, actually, with our, uh, with our predecessors from Australia, um, because there seemed to be two or three philosophical issues. Uh, when I got to Korea, um, the first thing I put on the table was all the car tariffs to zero. Mm and all within three years, 75% first year. Mm. And it just took their breath away. Mm. And, um, you know, the 5% tariff wasn't keeping the car industry. Despite 60% tariffs at one stage, the car industry had gone backwards for decades and decades. Yep. And the inevitability didn't hinge on the 5% tariff levels that were left. But um, it was... Labor didn't want to put itself, obviously, I don't know what their reasoning, but I presume because of the trade union base, they couldn't move on that. And that was a, something of great significance to South Korea. 
And the reason I wanted to move quickly is because they wanted to get the, uh, the jump on Japan, mm. right? And um, there were a couple of other things with the, uh, there's an investor state dispute settlement mechanism and other things which are more technical, yeah. which um, for one reason or another, Labor didn't want to move on or wouldn't move on. And we were prepared to. So the combination of those things, but it was the car tariff principally and uh, and they they wanted to demonstrate that they were that they were a progressive you know they were a government that could um, could build a whole range of free trade agreements with different countries so that one was that one was relatively and a lot of my predecessors had done a lot of the other heavy lifting and the department negotiators of course because mm. there's you know there's 11,000 tariff lines to start with and someone has to go through every tariff line and work out, uh, you know, if we're going to change it, uh, by how much, back to zero, or halve it, or, and over what period, and, mm. you know. There's, there's thousands of hours of work in these things. Uh, but, of course, it's all grown into a new, um, which is a good, great thing. It's not just tariffs. It's now uh, access, mm. and especially with services. That's... And that's a whole new growth area because all of these, especially the developed economies, mm. um, we're, we're dripping with services expertise and um, and the developing world also needs that expertise. Mm. So it's a whole new fertile area which China... The China deal showed the way. I mean, I, you know, I, China had other motivations too because um, the the trade establishment, if you like, the WTO and uh, all the sort of UN bodies and all of that sort of group, um, they were sort of saying behind their hands, China is not up to doing a... It might be doing things with lots of developing countries, but mm. uh, they're not up to doing something with a, you know, a G20 country. Mm. Mm. Um, they couldn't do it. They can't make the concessions. They can't liberalise to that extent. Mm. And China saw, I think, with us a chance to be a, to deal with a G20 country, and a country that was a major exporter, and a country that was highly liberalised, you know, one of the most liberalised countries in the world from a trade and investment point of view. And so, why do you think that was? Do you think it was a personal relationship you had with your counterpart, or Australian China's historical relationship, or geographical location? We presented an opportunity for China. To do a quality deal, mm. because the point I made about special economic zones, they could treat the deal with Australia in a very liberalised way, without creating unintended political consequences internally, mm. right? And they could get the benefit of all that, and they were able to then get bragging rights mm. at the WTO, okay. get everyone off their back right. about them not being able to do these things, mm. right? And, and they are progressively liberalising with the United States and the EU and all sorts of things, but we've got hundreds of things we've got ahead of them. Yep. And um, and China's looking at how that works out, etc. And uh, so I think that was a... And to keep reinforcing, you know, you know, Minister, we are heading towards a really quality deal. Mm. This is going to reflect very strongly on your country and, and you. I mean, I'd, I... I recognised that and acknowledged it. Yeah. <laughs> but it was also helpful because... And it, it's worked out that way too. I mean, it was amazing after it was finished. The Europeans and 
all the people at WTO, everyone would come up and say, hey, how, did, how did all that happen? This is, mm, mm. this is one of the best deals in the world, you know, to date, right. because of the service component in particular. Okay. Right? Um, so China, they were able to make a point to the establishment okay. in, in the trade area, if you like. And um, the Japan, Japanese one was um, a lot of difficulty because they'd never moved on agriculture, never, mm. with anybody. Um, business sector was really determined. They desperately wanted to see structural change, especially with agriculture. They thought too many resources were tied up in, you know, a century-old century infrastructure and practices and all the rest in, in, in agriculture in particular. And um, so uh, the interesting thing was when I went, because I had the investment role as mm. well as trade, mm. uh, these are really invest, trade and investment agreements these mm. days, uh, but because I had the investment role, when I went to negotiate the first time, I said to my department, I'd like also to go and talk to some of the business sectors about investment. You know, that was the agenda, uh, how we can increase investment, two-way investment with Japan. And so they put together very high level, you know, the chairman of Mitsui and chairman of Mitsubishi, all of whom are, you know, well known to Australia and are some of our biggest investors, and Hyundai and all these groups. And here I am sitting around a table with eight or ten of the captains of industry, mm. and all they wanted to talk to me about was how... To, how I, they could help me okay. to, to uh, be successful oh, right. in, okay. in the trade agreement, right? Yeah. And, and I finished the first night and I was thinking, how good was that? And, and they were giving me insights into the pressures that would be on the minister that I was negotiating with. Okay. Right? Actually, I negotiated with five ministers in different, all their specialist areas, which yeah. is... But, um, but they'd tell me where the pressures were. Yep. on the Japanese government, and where it was really hard to move at all, even though they wanted to see lots of movement. Mm. But then they'd identify the areas that they thought the country needed to move, yep. could move, and it's not going to be a political disaster. So, so just out of openness, just to move the deal along and just well, uh, it not helped. take 10 years to do it? Well, that made a huge... It made a yeah. huge... Because I yep. would go in... So every time I went to negotiate, mm. I would have an informal dinner right. with these captains of industry, yeah. and they'd be like toweling me down for the next day, you know, yeah. and we'd have agenda items on the different key areas that yeah. were coming up, and, and they wouldn't, um, they just inform me, they'd help me to put myself in the shoes of the minister on the other side of the table, Yeah, right? they'd help me say where he's really having trouble, and where I can push, and all of business, all of these guys would, would, would behind the scenes pushing the government in the same direction, right? So um, I had this knowledge, because normally you go into a negotiation and the person on the other side of the table, you can't tell what's important or what's not, mm. you know, from their face. I mean, they're just... Uh, that's negotiating, you know. You, yeah. you keep your Poker cards face, yeah. close to your chest. <laughs> um, but increasingly, and then I, I copied this again with China, uh, which now I'm getting stick for because I actually know a Chinese businessman mm. or two, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but in Japan, it was seen as clever. In China, it's seen as you're selling out the country that you... Right. You, I mean, I'm just getting a bit carried away, but um, yeah. I, I really resent deeply some of the innuendo about contact with China when it's got so much prospect for us, uh, yet the same sort of approach that I took in to get to know the business people 
in particular and what they could tell me mm. about what needed to be done, where the government should move, um, but also where the government would find it really difficult to move. So I could then more readily uh, work out a pathway through the things we wanted and that some things are more important to us than other things. Yeah. Right? And I could work a pathway where, and, and then doing the three together, more or less, enabled me to say, well, you know, the dairy industry, it mightn't get quite what it wants in the Japanese deal, but by God, there's, I know yeah. a lot's going to come their way in yeah. China, in the China deal. And even though I hadn't finished the China, I, I mean, I knew, so I'd yeah. take a bit of heat uh, when we announced the Japanese deal with some areas. But, uh, but we made, I mean, the, the, in some things, the first most significant developments ever with Japan on agriculture in particular. And um, again, um, the business sector did support the government and did praise them and genuinely thought um, the government had, the Japanese government yeah. had, had achieved uh, a, a significant breakthrough. Uh, and, and actually the sun came up the next day. I mean, I can tell you, when we finished it, a couple of the ministers that I was negotiating with, they were just so nervous about what would be the consequence mm. politically mm -hmm. of what they're signing off to. And uh, overwhelmingly, at, at the time, it was a positive. The yeah. whole free trade agreement was... Everyone had thought, you know, the country is making movements in yeah. areas that we need to make movements and haven't done for 50 years. Yeah. Just coming back to industry, did, did you have the same industry access in China as you did in Japan? Or in China, did it, did it move more through the, the, the party? No, no, I, I, I didn't have a lot of party access. OK. Though, you know, a lot of the big business people are involved, they're party members, yep. and they might even be, you know, on state council, and there's several hundred on that. Yep. And, I mean, it gets grossly overblown here, but it's, it's no different than an advisory committee. I had 20 CEOs on an advisory committee from people from different sectors. And from my observation, it wasn't much different. You know, they'd go and give advice and, you know, who knows whether it's taken up or not, but yeah. they, they weren't closely involved in the day-to-day -day actions of government. Um, so it's the, the Japanese, you know, the, it was a more established group of, of very senior people because they've got all those big trading companies who in many cases, the sort of backbone of, yeah. of the economy and all the rest of it. Yep. So when uh, it wasn't difficult mm. to get each time, I'd have a significant number of them. You know, out of ten, there's uh, obviously people missing sometimes, but yeah. But you know, I'd have five or six every time. Okay, right. Uh, and when I got to China, you know, I had to establish my own often. Uh, linkages, some of it through Chinese here, yep. who are making a, you know, who are now resident here and significant players. Um, so I had, I, there wasn't a logical group that I could go to and mm. sit down each time. Okay. Um, but I, but I had in the end quite a few lines of communication to find out what the party was thinking, uh, but also to educate me on the sensitivities, yeah. the areas of sensitivity. Okay. So what about the demand side of Chafta? Australia obviously relies more on China than China relies on Australia. Mm. 
about a third of exports currently go to China. But how's Chapter been received in China? Do you do you feel like the business community is aware that Australian goods can be purchased cheaper compared to in the past because of Chapter? Is Mofcom in China doing a lot of work to promote Chapter in China? Well, um, it got a lot more publicity mm. than here mm. in Australia. Mm. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it was. It was seen to be an agreement of a quality that would normally be struck between two first world economies. Mm, right, yeah. And here was a developing economy, um, albeit developing quickly, but a yep. developing economy yep. that was able to achieve uh, a quality agreement. Um, so uh, it got a lot of publicity. They were very proud of it. You know, there'd be 2,000 people at a lunch to hear our Prime Minister talk about it or even myself to talk about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and when you go back, especially in, you know, Shanghai and Beijing and yeah. Guangzhou and the bigger, some of the, the really bigger centres, um, yeah, they, 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 they all know about it. Mm. Well, yeah, they do. Mm. And and I don't think it's, it's OK. They think it's going to be... Um, Cheaper, and there are lots of provisions which um, make make it that way. But more importantly, there's an endorsement from the government mm. um, that this is a priority relationship. Oh, right. Okay. okay. Yeah. And so they think about well, if things get into trouble, you know, what's going is the government going to cut some slack for them oh, or right. help them or whatever? But those government links are established. <laughs> The fact that China's done this deal with Australia, oh. it it gives a lot of comfort. Yeah, a lot of certainty to, to, to business, even though it's ill-defined as to how that would right. how that will play out. Mm. Um, and it, it's not, you know, if you're doing some things in this space with Australia, um, they're good things. Mm. You know, the, the officials and regulators and all of that um, are more likely to respond mm. and um, you know if there's problems at a port and things it's more likely it doesn't stop it but it's more likely to be resolved more quickly and all these sorts of things so it's a, you know a thousand in a thousand little ways um, that endorsement of the relationship that their government you know um, puts Australia in, in yep. that, that sort of status mm. which um, a lot of other even significant countries don't Mm. Have that have that relationship with China. So you mentioned that China is a developing country, and it certainly still sees itself as a developing country, despite all the gains it's made in the last twenty years. The recent U.S. election of last year, there's a sense of a vacuum in global leadership on free trade. Mm. D- despite seeing itself as a developing country, do you think China could step into a more leadership role internationally with trade? And if so. What would that mean for Australia? Well, there's there's a whole lot of agreements taking... Like, there's the TPP's been put up on the shelf, mm. um, despite the the irony that the biggest beneficiary of TPP being introduced would be the US itself. Mm. But that's politics, OK? And... Um, but I think China has got the opportunity to show some leadership. And I saw it immediately after some of those things were happening. 
China, um, the way it, it engaged in things like the, um, the regional agreement that's being attempted on the sort of western side yeah. of Asia, yeah. uh, a TPP equivalent, mm. some of the countries are the same, you know, Australia's in both agreements. Yeah. Um, but if, if China leads the charge there with 16 countries and, and pulls off a deal, um, those 16 countries, or the other 15 countries, mm. will... Um, they, they can't help it. They, they will treat China uh, differently than if China hadn't shown leadership and yep. hadn't got it through, right? Yep. TPP is sitting on the shelf and here's uh, the regional agreement for the West, western part of Asia, largely, mm. um, going through. So uh, the services agreements being struck... Uh, at the WTO level, mm. and not not with all 160 countries, but with a selection. Now, there's a lot of areas China um, could come in and, and move things where America's sitting on their hands. Mm. Um, but I think, especially in the Asia Pacific, um, yeah, China with bilateral agreements with other countries and with some of these regional agreements, um, and it's not lost on them. Yeah. You know, they're furiously paddling on some yep. of these areas. Yeah. And so what about Belt and Road? So the Chinese <coughs> government announced the Belt and Road Initiative this year, estimated investment $1.3 US dollars. Um, do you see Australia playing a role in Belt and Road? Well, I certainly hope so. Mm. I mean, it's it's been a bit confusing for me. Um, yeah. The government and the opposition have said very little about it. Um, I think because... There's a lot of pressure coming from the US, like there was with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, mm. which was a no-brainer. Mm. I mean, okay, <laughs> um, and which is now operating alongside and in cooperation with the Asia Development Bank and the World Bank on major projects in the region, yep. and pumping you know nearly a trillion dollars over time. Uh, so that was, and the US still hasn't joined it. But even though the World Bank's actively engaged, and that's the one that the US... So you get all these sorts of uh, political dilemmas. You know, I think the US is um, they're somewhat consumed with the, the expansion of China mm. um, in terms of their influence. Mm. And the Belt and Road is seen as another. Uh, but if you pour trillions of dollars into the countries in your region, mm. uh, um, I, I, I think you could expect your influence to, to grow. <laughs> but, you know, China's doing this out of self-interest. China's got a huge workforce. Um, they're looking forward. They've got a excess capacity in all sorts of areas. Um, now, they can store it like Europe used to, you yeah. know, um, with, in their case, stockpiles of butter and all sorts of things. China could, you know, stockpile steel and done it. Or they could um, develop a hundred countries between them and Europe mm. and in the Asia Pacific. Um, they could help d develop those countries who in a way then become more developed, more prosperous, bigger consumers, developing their own businesses, yep. but with the help of China in its first instance. But the Belt and Road, I mean, it's developed as a concept. Um, 
But it's basically this, at the root of it is, uh, we can all benefit if we help you develop, mm. you know. And it's, it, of course it's self-interest, mm. um, but if it keeps China more stable because there's jobs and development, and if it contributes to the region because mm. there's um, more development and growth mm. and skills and whatever, then I'm still struggling to see, you know, the downside. Now the USC, they don't. I don't know. They may see all that, um, but the, what they see is um, a country that's growing in influence in a broader part of the world. Mm. If the Americans went and spent trillions of dollars in Eastern Europe, etc. Yeah. Well, their influence would grow too. Sure. In that area, yeah. <laughs> it's. it's it's um, and my my sense is that um, that China and India are returning to where they were. They're re-emerging. They're not emerging. They're re-emerging. Some countries in Asia they are emerging. Yeah. China and India were were a part of the centre of gravity of economic and political life mm. around the globe, as as the globe was at that mm. time. Uh, for 18 of the last 20 centuries. Now, we know what happened uh, for the last 200 years, yeah. but they are inexorably moving back to share, you know, power and authority mm. um, and influence in all sorts of ways. India is, China is, and they'll share it with America. Yeah. And to me, that's the reality of this next century. Mm. And we should all be focused on how do we do that in a peaceful way, yeah. how do we do that in a way where, um, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of people share in the prosperity, yeah. right, uh, and and avoid conflict? Yeah. And um, it's not easy because history suggests that not always, but more often than not, that sort of uh, transition of power sharing, yeah. uh, at least, um, is associated with, you know, major conflict mm. and um, and I think Australia we're the sort of meat in the sandwich in a way but it, having said that we've put ourselves there and we're proud of it you yeah. know we're a little country in numbers but uh, we're in the G20 and we're in all of the major global forums and we're respected uh, we're not a threat to anybody so it puts us in a very um, interesting position in terms of influencing yeah. What what happens? Sowing seeds, you know, um, putting quiet pressure on decision makers, being friends with senior yep. people from a lot of these countries, uh, and we uh, we can have a big influence. And I, I do think that at the heart of um, uh, at the heart of a peaceful community is a respect for one another. Mm. Now the same thing is at the heart of a respectful region. <laughs> is to have mutual trust and an understanding between countries mm. and trading with them, investing with them, developing link linkages. You know, we've now got two million families, uh, sorry, t two million people in Australia mm. who've got permanent residency or citizenship who speak an Asian language in their home. Half of those speak Mandarin and the other half speak whatever, Indonesian, Malaysian, yep. whatever, in the home, which means they're relatively recent arrivals and um, 
but they've got so much to offer, in my view. They've been... The Asian migrants of recent decades have, have proven to be very effective and welcome yep. members of our community. They, you know, they integrate well, uh, they don't cause problems, they, in many res respects, share the values that, mm. that our country shares, right? So um, all of this augurs well, but we, we can't get... Um, we've got to work at it. We've got to work at it. And it's, um, commerce is a big part of it, yeah. but also government involvement is, is another big part. Well, I think the idea about China's re-emergence is so intrinsic to China's identity. And Australia is really learning how to see China the way China sees itself. Mm. A lot of Australians, you know, wouldn't view China as re-emerging. And I think that cultural understanding and understanding of history and just political understanding will really go a long way to Australia's relationship with China being beyond one that's purely transactional. Yeah, yeah, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's if we just stick in the transactional laneway, um, anything could happen, mm. you know. You could build a strong transactional and then something political happens which blows it all up. <laughs> yeah. Stops those channels and all those relationships. Well, they're not relationships, so that's the trouble. A lot of what we're doing is just done through brokers and things. Mm. By not investing in the region, not just China, but, you know, we've got more businesses in Dubai where you can throw a stone across the mm. country. We've got more businesses in Dubai than we've got in Indonesia. Mm. Oh, and right. Indonesia's, set, you know, yeah. are nearly 400 million people on our doorstep. Mm. They will be the fourth biggest economy within 10 to 15 years in the in the world. Yeah. And then we've got China. Um, we've got about the same number of businesses in China as we've got in Indonesia, which mm. is two-fifths of nothing, yeah, right? right. Um, so it's, it's sort of beggar's belief, really, mm. that, um, you know, the conditions are not... Not that we should be all over those countries if they're not ready for... But there's lots of things we could do. Um, just visit, to start with, yeah. you know. And, and not just one-off things, mm. but turning up not for major decisions mm. all the time, just turning up and engaging and showing that you've got some interest. And, and it's, it's half the battle. Well, Andrew, you've been so generous with your time today. Um, you know, it's been great getting your insight on Chapter China, um, international trade. All the best for the future, and uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. A great pleasure. Enjoyed the discussion. My sincere thanks to Mr. Rob for being so generous with his time and sharing his front row seat on how Chapter was negotiated. If you'd like to hear more from this podcast, you can find us on the iTunes store by searching China Path Podcast, or you can access the podcast and additional Chapter information on this episode's webpage at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. Until next time, 再见. <laughs>